Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, uh, we ask that you would that you grant us uh, understanding, insight, uh, grant us to um, uh, bring up the, the questions that we should be asking, uh, grant us uh, sharpness of mind, take away dullness, and grant us uh, to hear precisely what it is that Jesus is teaching us, um, and, uh, and clear away anything that distracts from that and, and sharpen our minds in on that focus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, friends. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So last Monday uh, was the eclipse. I don't know that you saw it. Um, I know a lot of people did. I didn't. Um, I, I sort of half-heartedly uh, went out and moped on my terrace because I had forgotten to get glasses. And so I went outside and I, I, I just sat out there underneath the eclipsing uh, sun and, and thought of my, you know, don't look at the sun. Everybody says don't look at the sun, so don't look at the sun. But somehow I, I wanted to be out there underneath what I wasn't able to look at. But in any event... Other people, it was, I thought it was really interesting at least um, to read uh, people's reflections who did get to see it, and, and particularly those who were in what's called, which I think is fun, the totality. Um, it sounds like something out of sci-fi or something like that, but, but the people who experienced totality. Um, they, they described it in a lot of different ways. So some people talked about how beautiful it is. Uh, some people talked about how kind of uh, troubling it is. One of the things that I thought was interesting is a few people mentioned that, uh, that for the first time when they, when they saw you know, the sun completely blocked out, that they realized that they weren't at the center of things. And I think what they meant was that they, weren't, they realized that they weren't at the, sol at the center of the solar system. Now, I, yeah, I'm kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. I, I think they realized that beforehand. Um, but it's one thing, obviously, to know, theoretically, right, that the Earth isn't the center, that the, the sun is, and that we're a little bit of it that runs around it. Um, but it's another thing when, I mean, I mean the, but the reality is we get up in the morning, and it, it looks an awful lot like the sun goes around, doesn't it? You know, I mean, it comes up, it goes down, we talk that way. It feels like the Earth is at the center of things. And apparently, however, when you see the totality... Um, all of a sudden, for some of these people, for the first time, they felt the reality of what they already know to be true. They felt the reality that they were, that we are in this solar system where the Earth is not the centerpiece of it, where the, the sun is at the center, and that there really are big spheres running around it, and we're just one of them. And for some of the people who described this, they said it's really unsettling. It it's, can be frightening to feel the reality of something you already know to be true. Now, why am I saying all this? Well, partially because I, I was really excited about the eclipse, even though I didn't get to see it. But I'm not bitter. Don't worry. Um, but I, the other reason, the more important reason, is that we're continuing in Psalm uh, 119. Um, you can see it there on page uh, 15. We're taking the next stanza of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible, and it is all about the role of the Word of God in the life of a Christian. It's all about the role of the Scriptures, the Bible, in the life of a Christian. And here's one of the startling 
themes that comes up in all through Psalm 119, but really um, is, is pretty clear in this section. It, it's this. Psalm 119 thinks that God and God's word is at the center of things, not me. I know that shouldn't be insightful, but take a look. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 17, the very first line. It says, deal bountifully with your servant, or you could translate it just as well, treat your servant well, God. And then it it goes on and gives a reason. But just stop there for a minute and and think with me. Um, This is going to be an odd question, but if you were to ask God, and I'm sure you've done this, if you were to ask God, God, treat me well, When you ask God that, what is the outcome you're looking for? What what are you hoping that is going to happen by asking God to treat you well? Maybe it's kind of a strange question because it's probably so obvious we wouldn't even ask it. When I ask God to treat me well, I'm hoping that that's going to turn out with me having a pleasant life. Kind of. I mean, mean, even if I don't put it that way, one way or another, that's what I'm hoping for. God, treat me well so that things go well in my life. Now, that's probably just me. I'm sure it's not you. But look back at verse 17. Look at what the outcome is that the psalmist is looking for. Deal bountifully with your servant, and here it is, in order that I might live and keep your word. I think that's weird. Because the psalmist is asking God, show, treat me well in order so that I can go yet deeper into your word, so that I can have deeper insight and that I can live out your word more fully. I think that's a little bit odd. And it seems to me that Psalm 20, uh, 119 is a little bit like watching an eclipse. Because it tells me that I'm not the center of things. I'm not even the center of my own prayers. But all through it, it has this assumption, it never says it just this way, but it has this ongoing assumption that God is at the center of things, that knowing God as he presents himself in Scripture is the center of things, and that my life will be as it should be when, when I'm living in relation to that with God and God's word at the center and me orbiting around that. And that unsettles me. Even if I theoretically know that that's the way it should be, it unsettles me. So if you're a Christian, you might know that that's the way it's supposed to be, but if you think about it for any length of time, it will be an unsettling thought. And if you're not a Christian, if you're just investigating, then it's going to sound like it's just crazy. But what I want to show you is that Psalm 119 says that when we are no longer the center of things, and when God and God's Word becomes the center of things... As unsettling as it is, it's good. It's actually the way we were meant to live. Let me try to flesh it out a little bit, all right? Okay, Um, take a look at the setting. Uh, Look at uh, verse 19 and look at verse 23. Verse 19, the the psalmist says, I'm a sojourner on the earth, hide not your commandments from me. And then skip to verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Now, 
just consider the scene that the psalmist is presenting. Um, the situation for the psalmist is not particularly pleasant. So verse 19, the, I'm a sojourner. What's a sojourner? A sojourner is a, an exile, a refugee, an immigrant. It, it is somebody who doesn't have inherited rights in the nation in which that person is living. So it, 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 he's a long way from home, one way or the other. And then verse 23 tells us that it is not a happy situation, that the political leaders are, one way or another, plotting against him to make his life worse. So he's feeling the pressure of not being in a place where he has any inherited rights, and he's also feeling the pressure that the political leaders are actually, in one way or another, we don't know how, after him. So it's not a happy situation. And yet, in spite of the fact that he's going through a very difficult situation, um, look at where the psalmist's attention is. Do you catch that? The psalmist is not captivated with what I would be, not captivated by the, this is a terrible situation that I'm in right now. The psalmist is captivated, rather, by God and God's word. Once again, God and God's word is the center, and the psalmist is orbiting around that. And I want to know why. Why is the psalmist doing this, and why is it a good thing? Why isn't the psalmist saying, um, God, your word is a really useful tool as I engage the situation that I'm facing in life? That's not what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is just saying, I am facing a situation in life, but you know what my real focus is? My real focus is on your word. That seems odd. Why? Why does he do it? Well, there's a backstory. Um, last few weeks, as we've gone through Psalm 119, every single week there's been a, a backstory from the Old Testament. And the backstory for this is our first reading, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me set the stage just a little bit, and then we'll come back to Psalm 119. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what, what it is, is it's uh, Moses addressing Israel right before they go into the land of Canaan. So what happened was God rescued Israel from being slaves in Egypt they spent 40 years in the desert, and they had to rely on God for every single thing, every single day. And now, 40 years later, this is the end of Moses' career. They're about ready to go in and get their final permanent home, which is great. And in the reading from Deuteronomy, God does two things. First of all, through Moses, God, God warns them. Well, he gives them actually the very heart of the scriptures, of the law, and then secondly, uh, he gives them a warning. First of all, he gives them the heart of the scriptures in verse uh, 5. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. Um, we emphasized this a couple weeks ago, but um, when the Bible talks about the law of God or the word of God, it's not just talking about uh, a set of rules that are meant to kind of regulate our behavior. It includes that, but it's, that's not its core. The word of God, the law of the Lord, the scriptures are all about how God loves us and rescues us and calls us to return that love to him in a relationship uh, that is meant to be animating, animating every aspect of who we are. And that relationship, says the Bible, is just the central meaning of our lives. So that if that relationship uh, is not there, then the rest of our lives begin to de decompose, crumble apart. 
So the point is, here in Deuteronomy, knowing God as God presents himself in Scripture is just the centerpiece of our lives because out of that grows this relationship that we were designed for. So that's the first thing he says in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, But then, in verse 10, Moses gives them a warning. And I'll paraphrase, but in so many words, Moses says, listen, Israel, watch out. Watch out for prosperity. Did you catch that? Watch out for comfort. Watch out when things are going really, really well the way you want them to. He says, because when you get a home, finally, and they've they've been homeless for 40 years, when you finally get a home, when life gets comfortable, when you finally get the Israelite dream, he says, that's when you will be most likely to jettison that relationship with God that is meant to animate every other aspect of your life. And then, two chapters later, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, I'll quote this, Moses says this. He says, when you've built houses, and they're good houses, and you live in them, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Jim, what's the point? Here's the point. Wealth and prosperity and comfort are not bad things. They're good things, but they can be dangerous. And they're dangerous because they can whisper in our ear. And what they whisper in our ear is they say, you know what, you are the center of your story. And all these good things that you've gotten in your life, you achieved them. You deserve them. And as that, as prosperity whispers that in our ear, what can happen is that it can lull us to sleep with an opiate of pride. Arrogance. I'm the center, and everything else revolves around me. And the problem is that when we make ourselves the center of things, we become unable to see God in his word and to know God in the way that God wants to know us. We just become blind. Now, Keep all that in your mind and come back to the psalm because it helps us under psalm verse. Uh, it helps us understand verse twenty-one. Verse twenty-one sounds really harsh. You rebuke the insolent, which is another word for proud, arrogant. You in, you rebuke the proud and arrogant, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Ouch! It sounds really harsh. However. We find out a little bit later in Psalm 119 that the psalmist himself experienced this. So in uh, verse 67, we didn't read it, but in verse 67, the psalmist says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your law. See, the psalmist was one of those arrogant ones who at some point in his life became sure of himself, became uh, uh, just probably didn't explicitly say, I don't need God, but probably just kind of lived like he didn't need God. And that, so to speak, uh, that arrogance became an opiate that led him to sleep until God allowed him to experience some sort of affliction. 
It might have been uh, that he became a literal exile. It might have been that he came under political pressure in one way or the other. But however it happened, what discomfort served to wake him up and to see that knowing God was the most important thing, not his comfortable life. And the psalmist says that, counterintuitively, that ended up in freedom. Uh, Martin Luther talks about this a little bit, and he, he's talking about how suffering and adversity can actually be crucial in helping us understand and experience God's word and all its blessings. Let me read you what he says. It says this, Trials and adversity is the touchstone that teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right and how true and how sweet and how lovely and how mighty and how comforting God's word is. You begin to see that it is wisdom beyond all wisdom. And that's why David, in Psalm 119, you'll see him always complaining about all kinds of enemies and arrogant princes and tyrants and false spirits and factions whom he must tolerate because he meditates and is occupied with God's word. The reason is, as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harass you and will make a real doctor of you. And by the devil's assault, will teach you to seek and love God's word. And then Martin Luther, as he normally does, gets a little colorful. He says, I myself, if you will permit me, mere house dirt to be mingled with pepper. I am deeply indebted to my enemies that through the devil's raging they have beaten and oppressed and distressed me so much. That is to say, they've made a very good theologian of me. And I would not have become so otherwise. Martin Luther's always fun to read. Um, what he's saying is that the, the, the uh, adversity that he experienced in his life pressurized him and drove him to uh, dig down deeper into the scriptures and find all their richness. I've asked this question before, but I'll ask it again. Um, how do you interpret the difficulties of, the, of your life that you face? When you face difficult things, do you immediately say, look, I knew God couldn't be trusted? Or are you able to say, God, use these circumstances, painful though they are, to drive me to see you more clearly in your word and to experience more deeply the good gifts you have to give me through knowing you. Now, I want to be really careful here because I am not saying, please hear me, I am not saying that suffering is a good thing. Psalm, or verse 22 in our psalm is a prayer asking for relief from suffering. Pray that you would be relieved from suffering. Absolutely. But what I am saying is that sometimes we have to be broken and humbled before we're able to see God's word clearly and to deeply experience what it is he wants to give us. Um, this is exactly what happened with Jesus' disciples. Um, you remember Jesus' disciples spent three years almost every day with Jesus. And if you look at their lives, though, you could ask the question, when did the disciples really get it? 
When did they really get it? Was it when they saw the big miracles? Um, you know, Jesus like fed 5,000 people with just a few things. Is that when they saw how amazing he is? No. Was it when they saw Jesus, you know, I don't know, walk on water? Was it when Peter walked on water? No. I'm sure those things were helpful, but they, that's not the critical moment when they really saw the center of God's word and really began to be transformed by it. They didn't really get Jesus until their lives had fallen apart, at least for a few days. That's what the gospel reading is about. Um, remember, in the gospel reading, Jesus dies on Friday, and Jesus' death was unexpected. The disciples, it, it, it destroyed their lives. But then Jesus rises on Sunday. Our gospel reading picks up the story on Sunday. Jesus shows up. He meets with the disciples. And when he meets with the disciples, they are still broken. They don't get it. They can't see God's goodness. And in that moment of brokenness and humility, that was the perfect moment for Jesus to open their eyes so that they could see his goodness clearly for the first time. Look at the gospel. This is verse 45. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, meaning here's the whole point of the whole Bible, namely, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And look... I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now, that was a Bible study. And in that Bible study, as Jesus was teaching them the Bible, um, the disciples saw what they had never seen before. They saw that the whole Bible is about how God in Christ enters our world, enters our suffering. Did you know that God himself in Christ has entered your suffering? enters our suffering preeminently on the cross so that his enemies might become his daughters and his sons through forgiveness and through adoption and through being filled with the Holy Spirit. They saw for the first time that that's the central beauty of the whole story. And it changed their lives. And they couldn't quite see it until they were weak. And the interesting thing is that they knew Psalm 119. They knew our psalm. They had prayed verse 18. Verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And I'm sure that God answered that prayer in a lot of different ways up until this moment. But he answered it finally, not when they were strong, but when they were weak. Not when they were comfortable, but when they were uncomfortable. Um, not when they were in control, but when they knew without a shadow of a doubt that they were exiles, that they were sojourners, that they were in great need of rescue. And that's the moment when Jesus looked at them in the midst of what seemed like their world crumbling around them. And he said, friends, I have achieved everything necessary for your eternal joy and for the world's redemption. So trust me. And can you imagine the comfort and the joy that shot through their souls at that moment? And it drove them the rest of their lives with a remarkable purpose. See, friends, it's not that Jesus likes giving us difficulty. Please don't hear that. It is rather 
that he wants to give us something better than mere comfort. He wants us to give, him, to give us himself. And so very often he will humble us in order to show us our need. And what he's doing there is he's bringing us to a place where we're able to take ourselves out of the center and instead see that God and his word is the center and then see that we find our greatest significance as we orbit around him. And that will be the moment when we see just surpassing beauty. On Monday uh, on my terrace, I was really frustrated because I couldn't, I knew that something beautiful was happening right in front of me. Something that was so beautiful it could burn my eyes out. It doesn't happen every day. And, um, but I didn't have the glasses to see it. Jesus doesn't want that to happen as we come to the scriptures. Um, to kind of change the metaphor, so to speak, he, he, he wants to fit us with glasses so that when we look at God's word, we can see not just rules that are meant to regulate us, not just doctrine, not just history, not just obscure things that we don't understand, but rather so that when we look at scripture, we can see Jesus. We can see that we are seeing the real center of everything so that we can see his love and his mercy and the real meaning of our lives and know the joy that comes from that relationship. That's what he wants. All right, let's close. Two things, two ways to respond. First of all, pray like you're blind. And secondly, meditate like you're in exile. First of all, pray like you're blind. Um, Verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. Or open my eyes that I may see the beauty of Christ. A prayer, and that prayer in particular, that prayer is the the soundtrack of a humble heart. If I don't pray, it's because I think I've got things sorted. And Psalm 119 tells us that that's blindness. The disciples spent three years with Jesus and didn't get it. They, They needed their eyes open. We do too. Surely we do too. So pray, as you come to the scriptures, pray that Jesus would show you his goodness and beauty in the scriptures. And then pray expecting that you will discover things that you hadn't seen before. Some of us who have been Christians for a long time, you come to the Bible stories and you kind of think, don't we? Don't we kind of think there's nothing new here? Don't think that way. Come asking that your eyes might be open. And secondly, meditate on scripture like you're in exile. What do I mean there? Um, Exiles, sojourners, they understand that they do not have the resources within themselves to to do what needs to be done. They, They know that they need help. And therefore, they look away from themselves and their own resources, and they one way or another, they, they depend on others. Um, they need to appeal for aid. They need to appeal for refuge. They need to appeal for assistance. And it's a great image for Christian meditation because Christian meditation always looks away from ourselves because we're not the center anymore. We don't have what we need within ourselves. It looks away from ourselves to look at Jesus in his word. 
and, and almost like an, like an exile or a new immigrant studies the culture around you so that you can interact with it well. Uh, a Christian meditates uh, by looking at God's word and studying it and chewing on it in an ongoing, regular fashion. And as we do that, day in and day out, reading again and again the scriptures and uh, prayerfully asking, Lord, show me your beauty here and apply it to my situation so that I can see your beauty in spite of the difficulty around me. As that happens, you will find yourself seeing beauty that will burn out your eyes precisely because you'll see that you're not at the center of it. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes that we may see Jesus Christ. And we pray for those of us here who are right in the middle of difficulty and who wonder about your goodness. Show your beauty in the midst, in the midst of our pain. And for those of us who are doing well and are very confident, open our blind eyes. Don't let us stay there. Grant us to need you that we may see and receive the relationship for which we were created. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.